This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, February 27th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. The Supreme Court this week turned down an opportunity to review potential regulatory overreach by the IRS. Why did they do it? The court seems to have an appetite to rein in agencies that like to make their own rules. So why turn down a case that seemed to provide an opportunity to curtail so-called Chevron deference? Cato's Will Yateman comments. The Supreme Court denied certiorari, a petition for certiorari, um, to review a February order by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in Baldwin v. U.S. And this is a big deal because um, this case was the perfect vehicle. It had the perfect facts and the perfect legal context for, for any justice that was interested in taking on Chevron. By passing on this case, if you read the tea leaves, the court seems to be suggesting that it, uh, it at this time, Chevron reform is on the back burner. That said, as Justice Gorsuch noted in a recent opinion, it was uh, uh, Gundy v. U.S. Uh, regarding non-delegation, regarding a different administrative law doctrine than this judicial deference. These doctrines are related. They're not independent, which is to say that uh, just because the court has backed off of Chevron reform, just because Chevron reform is now on the back burner, that very well may indicate that the justices, that a critical mass of justices interested in the pursuit of reining in the, the administrative state has decided to allocate its limited resources, its, its, its firepower, its um, gunpowder, if you will, on a different doctrine. Uh, for example, non-delegation, this principle that uh, the courts must police the extent of power that Congress gives away to these executive branch regulatory agencies via this process known as delegation. So it's there's sort of two levels of potential ramifications if we're performing this criminology of the Supreme Court. And again, the, the first one, hmm, this case, Baldwin, had been a perfect vehicle, uh, seemingly a perfect vehicle. On the one hand, it entailed the, the, uh, uh, an agency, the IRS, that few are sympathetic to. Uh, the facts on the ground, it, the Baldwins are a couple from California. They uh, produced the movie Ray, the Oscar award-winning uh, movie Ray that uh, listeners might know of. Um, they, they overpaid $167,000 of taxes, and, and they sought a refund. It was their own money. They said that they filed their refund, they filed the documentation months in advance of the filing deadline. Nevertheless, the IRS says, we didn't get it. Um, therefore, because we didn't get it, um, we assume you didn't send it. And, and therefore, you've missed the filing deadline. And not only are you not going to get your money back, the $167,000, but according to our interpretation of the law, you can't even go to the courts to second guess our determination. Um the Baldwins, you know, again, there's a lot of money on the line. They had every incentive to to claw back 167,000 of their own dollars. They brought forth witnesses. They they, they before a, a federal district court in California, witnesses who testified under oath that they witnessed the Baldwins mail off this docu uh, document in question to the IRS. Um, it, it, interestingly, the statute, the IRS code 
doesn't speak to this situation. I mean, it, it establishes all sorts of filing deadlines, but it it, it doesn't uh, provide for a circumstance whereby the U.S. mail, you know, an entity associated with the U.S. government, loses a letter, or on the other end. If the IRS loses a document, I, but to this end, I'll note that there was a, a Washington Post art, article um, that I dug up from 1989, uh, in which the, the uh, an internal audit found that the IRS loses two million documents a year. Now, again, that was a long time ago, thirty odd years ago, but uh, it, it's not beyond the the scope of imagination to to think that either U.S. mail gets lost or the IRS loses the document. But the IRS wouldn't countenance this possibility. Well, okay, it's in federal court in California, so it's before the the, the ninth uh, the Ninth Circuit for decades. The Ninth Circuit had this rule. It's the common law mailbox rule for this very circumstance. So the statute is silent and the the Ninth Circuit adopted this rule whereby it says, hey, if if you, the Baldwins, can present uh, credible circumstantial evidence that you mailed this document on time, then we're willing to accept that. And and IRS, go ahead and at least consider their refund. Um, However, Again, that had been the prevailing law of the land in the Ninth Circuit for decades. Due to this corollary of so-called Chevron deference, and Chevron deference is the most famous principle in administrative law. What what it means is that uh, courts must respect, must give binding respect to an agency's interpretation of the law, even if the court thinks that it has a better interpretation. Um, This is for, for many of us out there, many legal commentators and scholars and practitioners this principle seems to fly in the face uh, of, of the constitutional bedrock principle for the judiciary that, that it's the judge's job to sit to determine what the law is. I mean, that's a famous quote in law. Uh, everyone learns it in law school. So that's the problem with Chevron. This case implicated a, a, a sort of Chevron on steroids, a corollary doctrine known as Brand X. And what this means is that courts not only are going to defer to agencies, but they'll defer to agencies even if the court had an existing and well-settled interpretation, such as the circumstances at play in Baldwin. So due to these judicial deference doctrines, the Ninth Circuit says, well, notwithstanding our decades of case law, the IRS um, submits a, a changed interpretation. We are bound by Supreme Court precedent, these judicial doctrines of deference, to see to the IRS. Uh, case closed, Baldwin's. You don't get your money. Um, you know, that's it. Um, everything about this case is suspect. I mean, everything about this this case screams for review, especially if it, any justices were interested in revisiting this Chevron principle. And Again, this is a, a, the most famous divisive principle in administrative law, and a lot of people thought that the court, a critical mass in the court, were interested in taking it on. This case was the perfect vehicle. Um, alas, yesterday, the court, alas, the court took a pass. Um, on the one hand, that is a, that's a pity. Uh, we had submitted a brief in support of the Baldwin's petition for certiorari. Um, we certainly believe at Cato that deference does violate this constitutional principle of that, that courts ought to say what the law is. Um, and the result yesterday would seem to militate against that end or, or the ends we desire. However, there might be a second level at play which perhaps uh, mitigates 
to a certain extent, the dispiriting scenario that, that I just laid out. And that is this. Chevron is one of many important foundational administrative law doctrines that, that sort of a, has implications for the administrative state writ large. Recently, and I already spoke about this. Yes, in a recent opinion, Gundy of Gorsuch mentioned, I mean, noted this very fact, these administrative law doctrines are related and that where the court suppresses one, decides not to pursue one, it perhaps allocates its energies towards reforming another. And I, I, I suspect, um, you know, it's a fool's errand to prognosticate the Supreme Court, but nevertheless, I'll do it here. And, and I suspect that's what's at play here. Um, uh, I suspect that uh, the justices, uh, all f- five the conservative quote unquote justices, have all expressed reservations with uh, deference, these deference principles to some extent. I, I suspect that the reason there wasn't uh, a critical mass to take up Baldwin, this perfect vehicle for revisiting Chevron, is because uh, they felt these justices that are interested in reigning in the administrative state that the vibe of the current court um, that potentially there are more votes that that there is a, a more harmonious path towards reforming the administrative state through a different doctrine and here uh, potentially um, again the non-delegation principle about which I, I discussed briefly earlier this the courts policing the extent to which Congress gives away its authority to these regulatory agencies so I uh, I suspect potentially that's the 3D chess, if you will, that's going on here. Um, you know, the justices that in the past have, have expressed skepticism over Chevron passed on this perfect vehicle because uh, they've got a different doctrine in mind to rein in the administrative state. Uh, and, and specifically, I'm thinking here of non-delegation. Non-delegation seems like a much larger bite at the apple than uh, not not reforming this uh Chevron on steroids. Is that right? Oh, well, it, it, no. The nature of law is that it, it generally can be parsed. Um, and th- that is a, a, a way of saying that not necessarily. Yes, non-delegation seemingly could strike down swaths of the administrative state in one fell swoop. But in practice, no. The, these regimes get challenged one at a time only a limited number are, are uh, uh, events that the sort of qualities that that justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh in recent opinions have 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 suggested uh, raise eyebrows in the court regarding an impermissible perhaps extent to which Congress has given away its authority. So yes, potentially, but in practice, these things are case by case, regime by regime, um, and it's just a, a different. Uh, different pressure point, if you will, for the administrative state than would be Chevron. So I don't really think of them in terms of magnitude necessarily. I mean, I think you could achieve very much the same ends with these different means. What did Justice Thomas write in this case? Justice Thomas had been the author of the original Brand X, this Chevron on steroids opinion. And in an opinion dissenting to the court's refusal to take up Baldwin, Thomas did something remarkable. He he disavowed his Brand X decision. Um, he said he, he now feels that it contravenes constitutional principles and that better late than never when it comes to uh, turning the corner on this particular doctrine. 
This is remarkable not just because Thomas did the 180. It's also remarkable because he was the only signatory to his to this dissent that, that no other justices joined on. Um, let me explain. In particular, Justice Gorsuch. In, in 2016, Justice Gorsuch made a huge splash and when he was a then-judge on the Tenth Circuit. In this case, Guterres. What was this big splash? What, how did he make his mark? By repudiating Brand X in particular. And indeed, Justice Thomas's dissent yesterday made many of the same arguments as had Gorsuch in this 2016 opinion that really put him on the map. So it's remarkable that Gorsuch, that his signature wasn't also affixed to this opinion, or at least as I see it. Um, I would say also it's remarkable that Justice Roberts, who in a 2015 dissent to FCC v. Arlington, expressed his consternation with these judicial principles of deference. Um, so I'm curious as to why he didn't sign on. And again, given the expectations, given you know, if, if you were looking at this rationally, knowing only the history of these judges, you would have assumed they signed on. The fact that they didn't suggests to me again that that something deeper is at play. And and that's what I was getting at with that sort of second level 3D chess, chess um, whereby the, these justices are holding their powder. Uh, they're, you know, reserving their resources because they see a more harm uh, towards reigning in the administrative state via a different doctrine. Will Yateman is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.